You're listening to the Brick by Brick podcast, where we take you from the ground up on real estate investing. Join us on our entrepreneurial voyage through the world of flipping houses, managing rental property, and building a real estate empire. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Brick by Brick podcast. I am John here with Ryan, as always. And today we're doing a great episode. We are talking about our top three successes and failures for each of us. I'm actually very excited about this episode. I don't even know really what yours are, Ryan. This is going to be episode number 22, our second episode with our new and improved intro. Yeah, absolutely. And I love it. Um, this is, I think, as you said, our uh, our BuzzFeed episode because yeah. we're doing a top a top list. But um, we're actually going to be talking not just about real estate successes and failures, although I think a lot of them are in that vein, but um, just things that we've experienced in our lives as entrepreneurs and business people. So uh, I think we'll go back and forth. So we're going to talk about each of us are going to talk about one of our, our failures, and then we'll go to one of our successes, failures, successes, and then do it that way. But uh, do you want to start us off, Ryan, with uh, sure. your one of your failures? Yeah. So I'll start off with a failure that this is going to be my first failure. And this is actually, I, I guess, probably the most recent failure. Um, and it's a project that we just completed in Livingston, uh, which is actually going to be the first deal that I've personally lost money on. And I know that that's I guess I'm kind of wearing it as a badge of honor at this point, because I think it's something that every investor is going to experience at some point. And uh, I guess I'll provide a little bit of context. So this is a property that John and I actually purchased together with a, a third partner. And while we lost money on the deal, the deal itself did end up being profitable. Um, one of the areas where we erred was in our deal structure. So we had offered him essentially a preferred rate of return that's higher than do, do what we've ever Do you want to just really like lay out the, the full context of a, what it was? You know? Sure. Yeah. So it's a single family. It was a single family flip. It's actually one that we discussed on the podcast here. I think it was one of the first few episodes, Anatomy of a Real Estate Deal in New Jersey or something to that effect. So it was a single family house that we purchased, did essentially a full cosmetic renovation of the interior. Should we go into numbers a little bit? If you want, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll do the best I can off the top of my head. So we purchased it for about 400000 Our renovation budget was about one forty. One area where we erred was in exceeding that budget, but it was mostly exceeded because we ended up expanding the scope a little bit. So we ended up making some kind of selective upgrades that we thought were going to enhance the the market value or the we ARV. Did, I think that the siding yeah, was not Yeah, so we, we sided the house, which we didn't originally intend to do. We built a small deck and a pretty large patio off the back of the house. I'd say those were the two biggest things that enhanced the scope and caused us to go over budget. But I think our assumption at the time was that we felt pretty confident in what the ARV was going to be, even while we were doing that. And where we were wrong was that it didn't, uh, the numbers that we thought, I think we expected to at least land in the sevens. Originally, we listed at 729 and then dropped it to 699, ultimately ended up selling at 670. Mm -hmm. And I think with those improvements, we kind of just figured that that was kind of an investment on our part through the construction business into the overall well-being of the project. And so we didn't share in that overage equitably with our invest investment partner. Uh, and that that's 
squarely on us for not communicating that and not running that through as we should have. But ultimately when it was all said and done, we sold the property. I think our, we ended up instead of 140, I think we ended up spending closer to 160 with the overages from the siding and the deck and the patio. And our investor, I think essentially earned a preferred rate of like 15% or so on his, uh, on his investment. And so we, congratulations to him. Yes. And at the end of the day, we, I guess, depending on how you look at it, we either made money on the investment, but lost more on the construction than we earned on the investment, or we broke even on construction and lost money on the investment. So it all depends on kind of how you account for that. I mean, I think that there are a lot of uh, reasons why that didn't go well. I think we can devote almost an entire episode to the, some of the mistakes that we made. But uh, I think you said it fundamentally right, Ryan, which is the the deal structure, I think, was wrong. Um, and this was one of the earlier deals that we had structured. And one of the reasons why the deal structure was so weird, I think, was that the way that we found the deal was also how we sort of financed the deal and that the the guy that identified the deal happened to live essentially next door across the street was someone who provided money for the deal. And so we felt a little bit constrained by that. I think even very early on, there were some yellow flags, I want to say, yeah. throughout the way that this wasn't going to go well. And um, in large part, I think a lot of that was based on the early conversations about the deal structure, right. where we had we had conversations with the investor about how we envisioned the deal going and about how we envisioned the compensation being structured. And once it came time to put pen to paper, uh, when we were already kind of half pregnant with the deal and really just wanted to get it through through the closing table, uh, to the closing table, that's when the investor's attorney began reviewing the operating agreement that we had proposed, which essentially formalized what we had verbally discussed. And then he took some issues with some of the business terms that we had discussed, which I would argue was not not under the jurisdiction of the attorney who's really just trying to make sure that what is verbally discussed is memorialized in an agreement. But ultimately, we've, we felt a little bit constrained by that and uh, I think sort of acquiesced to things that we otherwise may not have. Uh, yes, I'm still <laughs> uh, recovering from that. Yes, uh, that, that was that was a an authentic sigh you just heard. We've now we've now walked away. I would say. We're, <laughs> well, actually, there's still one thing left that right. is uh, is pending. But uh, but ha- we sold the properties. So. Right. Having said all that, I do think that as as agonizing as the experience was, we learned a lot from it, and I think we we honed a lot of our processes a lot more than we had before we did this project. And I think that's going to serve us well in the future. We also established some good contacts for some subcontractors, for some vendors and suppliers. And I think we'll definitely be a lot better off for it. We certainly learned a lot of things that we shouldn't do in the future. Yeah, right. but, but fundamentally, one thing that definitely hurts today and will probably always sting a little bit is that we poured a lot of time and energy into that project. And to do all of that, and not just not make money, not just not break even, but to lose money after all of that really sucks. And I think we should do a whole episode on on this project just yeah. to go into greater detail. But yeah, we might have to we might have to rip a few shots before that. But yeah, we'll we'll rip some. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that concludes <laughs> failure number one that's for failure Ryan. Failure one, John Stern. My failures are like I guess um, more 
just just more existential, more <laughs> more fundamental than a single thing. But uh, so my, you know, one of my top failures, uh, as I conceptualize it, is imitating people rather than staying true to myself in entrepreneurial ventures. And I, I think the best way to illustrate this is in my my startup times. So perhaps as some listeners of this podcast may know from other episodes, before I did real estate investing full-time, I was, um, you know, went to school to be a lawyer. And then I left that to run technology startups. And when I was running technology startups, the big thing for me to do as kind of like the CEO of these startups or, or whatever was you get caught up in this culture of, uh, of California, of Silicon Valley, of the startup culture. And I sort of became convinced when I was out there that I had to, to change what type of person that I was in order to facilitate doing things that I want to do in startups, like to raise money. So a so good started, example... So you started wearing a hoodie every day? I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, that's, uh, you know, it doesn't that... Of course, that is, that's definitely required. I'm not talking about that. No, I mean, I, I... So I remember for, you know, one of my startups, my last startup, basically, we were really anxious to raise money for the startup. We thought that that kind of the goal of a successful startup was raising money, which uh, as some of the recent... Uh, well-publicized failures like WeWork and et cetera have indicated is not the goal of uh, of operating startup. But that's what I thought was, you know, to be a successful entrepreneur in the startup tech world, you had to raise a lot of money. And I remember I went to, um, I think I've told you this story, but I'm probably not on the podcast. I went to a um, someone who was referred to me as a very successful entrepreneur. And he had raised millions of dollars, like three or $4 million for uh, one of his early stage companies that had nothing. I mean, they had basically no software, just a concept. And uh, you so, mean WeWork? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. This is uh, this was not as well publicized as WeWork, but kind of the the downfall is is almost as stark. But uh, they had raised, I think, five or six million dollars. And I, I went to this guy, and his whole technique about raising money was was insane, both at the time and certainly retrospectively. Essentially, he would. Um, uh, defraud people uh, to raise money. He would trick them. He would he would make up things about the success of his company. He'd make up other investments that he had. Um, there's a long story about him um, uh, essentially pretending to stalk someone uh, in order to call. Have I told you this story? This, I don't know oh, if this I've is, heard this. I mean, this is a little like, little diversion. This is a funny, bizarre story. This guy told me that he really wanted to talk to the head of a uh, venture capital firm really badly. He didn't know how to talk to this guy because he would never take his phone call, never get an introduction. He just, you know, the entrepreneur was running like a company that had no traction, no one had heard of it. So he devised a plan. I don't know if this is real, but this is at least the story that he wanted me to hear. He devised a plan that he would find a, um, a female associate, like a, a lower level person in the company to um, harass. So he started following this person when she would leave work, he somehow got her phone number and would call her up, just sort of like intentionally to creep her out. But it would always be very clear about who he was, like who his name was, whatever. And so at some point he did something really bad. I think he like followed her from her, 
her workplace or her car, like something oh like almost like, <laughs> you know, uh, like illegal, I would say. And she told her boss, who happened to be the head of the VC firm, um, hey, like there's this crazy guy who is, you know, harassing me. Like, what should I do? And someone either hit the boss or you know, some sort of like person at the VC firm reached out to this guy and said, look, you can't like, you know, we're going to get arrested if you do this. And his response was, look, I'm just so passionate about my idea and my product that I just want to talk about it. And so that's why I'm telling, you know, that's wow. why this, this associate, I'm trying to go to her. And he claims that as a result of this interaction, he got a meeting with the head of the VC and actually received money from this person. It sounds insane. That, that is, yeah. It sounds insane. It does and, sound insane. And it's, it's possible that this, this didn't happen, but it's, it's, um, it's illustrative of the fact that he told this story with pride as though even if it didn't happen, this is certainly what he wanted me to think had happened. And me listening to it, I mean... I think at one part of my mind was like, this is crazy. And I certainly never did anything even in that, in that universe. And to be clear, we do not condone such behavior. I, no, I, I, yeah, don't take it from the story. That's good behavior. That's really bad behavior. But it sort of convinced me that I had to be in this mindset where I had to change who I was. You know, like everyone who I, I thought was successful in the startup world was this really aggressive, hyper-masculine sort of uh, misogynistic, uh, just everything kind of bad about it that you might ascribe as a stereotype to this like startup bro culture, um, which, is a, which is a real thing. I thought that I had to be, you know, kind of like an asshole to raise money. I had to be borderline fraudulent and uh, and extremely pushy and all sorts of that's not exactly the personality type that I am and um, I ascribe a lot of my lack of success in that relative lack of success in that world to me trying to emulate people that I thought were successful and not trying to actually pursue concepts and ideas and solve problems that I thought needed to be solved. So my focus was, here's, I see this other person successful and this other person is this type of person or has this type of personality. Therefore, I, in order to be successful, I need to become that type of person. But in retrospect and in hindsight, I don't think that, I don't think that that's true at all. I don't think that there's a certain type of person that has to, that you have to be to succeed in, in that world. And me trying to be that type of person just made me feel very uncomfortable and out of water. I felt for some reason that I had to, um, some investor was very helpful and, and nice or whatever, but he was a, a little bit um, hesitant on committing to giving me money, and, like investing in the startup. And I remember it was decided like between me and my co-founder that I would just sort of like hang up on him as like a sort of sign of my, you know, displeasure, which is not at all in my personality type. And I don't think this guy had any ill intention, but I just was in a phone call with him and I just like hung up on him. And it was so weird. I've never done that before or after, but I remember like me and my co-founder like, yeah, like that was the right move. Like you gotta, like, you can't gotta value your time. You gotta hang up, you know, that sort of stuff. And it just, it felt so weird. It just said so uncomfortable and so not like my personality type. And I, I think that's a large reason why I wasn't successful. Yeah. I think, I think a, one takeaway from that is to be authentic. And if your authentic self is to be a little bit boastful or a little bit aggressive or abrasive or all of those things that you just described, then I suppose that's maybe excusable or acceptable uh, so long as it's kind of reined in and doesn't get out of control. But for certain, if that's not who you are by default, then don't try to change who you are to accommodate some ideal in your head of what, what you need to be because, John, you are who you are oh, and that's just oh fine. <sighs> Oh my gosh. Wow. Finally. It's been years of pent up. Uh, yeah. And now we're hugging. <laughs> 
Shall we move on to our, our successes? So I'll start with success numero uno. So the first success I've got down here is this tax lien portfolio that I've been a part of. So I guess the origin story of this is that it was kind of an opportunity that I don't want to say fell into my lap because I think I I had taken some steps to unleash this opportunity, I suppose. Unleash. <laughs> I I was I was Uncomfort. chasing down a property that I had, I don't know if I've told this story here before, but I was chasing down a property that I was interested in that was maybe a 20 or 30 unit apartment building in a town here in northern New Jersey. And I thought I had identified the owner and I had done everything I could to try to essentially skip trace that individual. Um, it was owned by a company. I thought I had traced the individual who was responsible for that company. And I had reached out to who I thought was his widow because I think I had determined that he had maybe passed away a few years prior. And I spoke to the lady who I thought was effectively his widow and she had no idea what I was talking about when I brought up the property in question. So I was kind of back to the drawing board because I thought that all lines had pointed me towards this individual as the person responsible for this property. Mm. So the next step was that I ran a preliminary title search to see if it would turn up any info that I hadn't uncovered from my searches. And you really wanted this property. I really did. And what property is this in East Orange? It was yeah, it was a it was like a abandoned looking like large brick apartment building that probably had twenty oh, or thirty building. units. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And so the title search essentially confirmed all of what I had turned up in my research, which was that same entity, that same individual. But I, I thought I had exhausted all options on that. The only other piece of information that I gathered was that there had previously or that there was a tax lien on record for that same property. So I ended up doing some research to try to find out who owned the tax lien and ultimately traced it to some entity and some individual associated with that entity. I reached out to them and they had informed me that the lien had paid off maybe a year or two prior. But as I'm sure, as they were sure I was aware, they had many other tax liens in that same city, to which I responded, of course I'm aware uh -huh. of that, despite <laughs> having no idea. So... Long story short, literally the, said like, I'm sure you're aware. <laughs> I, I, I think it was kind of like, yeah, it was, if it wasn't explicitly stated, it was in that tone or it was implied. <laughs> so long story short, they were looking to unload a portfolio of those and they had been, they were quote unquote ripe for foreclosure because they had matured over two years or so, which is maybe something that I could stand to do. And then... You want to ripe for yourself for foreclosure? No, I want to mature over two years. Uh, <laughs> um, a lot of things... Are, always, a, always a good joke when you have to explain a, it on the air. A lot of ways we could have gone with that one. So long story short, we ended up negotiating for that portfolio of tax liens. I, in the midst of all of this, was essentially teaching myself how tax liens worked in general, how they worked in New Jersey, figuring out who the right people were to handle such a foreclosure, what the process would look like from a timing standpoint, from a cost standpoint, uh, and then raising money to kind of facilitate that entire process. And long story short, within a few months, raised the money, closed on the portfolio, began foreclosing on a bunch of the assets. Uh, and now we're about two years later. And I would say the the investment is going on probably on the more optimistic optimistic end of what the original projections were which is i think validating and vindicating and pretty fulfilling because it's something that before it had 
been brought up to me, I truly had no real conception of and never would have imagined that I'd have, you know, be running a portfolio of 20 something tax liens in, in this area. And that, you know, we'd end up getting some uh, worthwhile investment opportunities out of it. And meet some fun people along the way. Meet some great people along the way. (laughs) That portfolio, I think, you know, we we're still doing work uh, construction-wise on it, and we're selling. Uh, you're selling some of the properties right now, but it's been a great eye-opener too to getting, you know, investment experience in East Orange, New Jersey, which is a a really unique place. I don't know if it's really increased our opinion of East Orange, New Jersey, <laughs> but yeah, I feel more comfortable with investing there than I did certainly sure. two years ago. I think For a lot sure. of it is just having a familiarity with what to expect. Right. Knowing and, the city better too. You know? Yeah. And yeah. I, I mean, I, there's, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. I think there's a lot of upside there. I'm a believer. An East Orange believer. Yeah. That's a, How about you, Mr. Erico? Definitely an East Orange believer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I would say one of my, you know, successes, um, you know, a lot of these are actually interrelated for me, but is doing um, Airbnb in Union City and Airbnb in general. So on an episode of this podcast that actually has not been been uh, released for for various reasons. So one of the ways that I got started in real estate investing was I moved to uh, New Jersey and I started investing, not even really investing, I just bought a place for myself to live and it happened to be a two-family home. And what my then-girlfriend, now-wife, started doing is we started renting out parts of the apartment on Airbnb. And um, that was was a very weird thing to do because we were living there at the time and we were essentially having people that were living with us full-time, both in the same apartment that we lived in and in a different apartment in the house. But it turned out to be insanely lucrative. I think we went from paying almost three grand a month to live in Manhattan to maybe less than six months later, earning something like two grand just by living in our house. As in, we were living for free and making $2,000 on top of our carrying costs. For the ladies and gentlemen at home, that is a $5,000 swing yeah, per month. $5,000. So that, that's, that amount of money, you know, I think unless you're enormously wealthy, is, is a life-changing amount of money that, that you automatically have. And so that really jump-started my entire real estate career because we used that extra money to buy a second house. And frankly, we did the same thing on the second house. We did the same thing on the third house. We got a fourth house, fifth house. And so that, if it wasn't for that decision, if we had just rented out the house normally, I don't think that I would be here because though moderately lucrative, it wouldn't have provided the sort of... Um, you know, powder, if you will, to buy more real estate properties. And I had to learn a lot about property management, property maintenance, dealing with people, you know, regulatory issues, legal issues, all sorts of stuff that has now informed what I'm doing full time. And frankly, we still, you know, use Airbnb as part of our investment strategy. I mean, we, we're, we've been employing that uh, between me and Ryan, we've been employing that essentially nonstop since I first started doing it. Um, and you know, we can get in the whole regulatory and ethical and whatever aspects about that at some other point. And we did actually in this episode that is forthcoming. Uh, But um, that is certainly one of my biggest dollar for dollar successes. I mean, I I can't even, I'm not even sure how much money we made from Airbnb. But if I told you the number, I think it would be insane. I mean, it's... uh, It'd be another great BuzzFeed headline. It's going to be a great BuzzFeed headline. It's like uh, one of those things where I like, I've always thought about uh, writing a book like I hosted like 
8,000 nights on Airbnb. <laughs> it's probably even more than that if you include all of the different places. So um, we made a lot. I mean, we made uh, well, well into the six figures, if not uh, more than that. So well, not more than that, but into the six figures. <laughs> so we, <laughs> How I made Airbnb millions. Airbnb millions, yeah. So that was certainly one of my, uh, my biggest successes. Hopefully we'll see more of that in the near future. Yeah. Should um, we move back to the failures? Yeah. So my failure number two, I put down as failing to diversify my income streams. Mm. So John and I have talked about this at length off air, and maybe it's, maybe it's been mentioned on the air at some points as well. I would say contrary to John's approach and to John's kind of journey to this point, I was a little bit more of a one-trick pony for a while. I was flipping primarily. Uh, I think I had bought maybe one or two rental properties. I would say, I think it was one rental property up until maybe two years ago. So my first like two or so years as an active quote-unquote real estate investor, I was really just flipping. And my while when I first started, I had a day job. So I was diversified in that regard. Um, my real estate income was tied only to one path and to one exit strategy. So there were any of any number of other opportunities that presented themselves in during that time. I could have been managing property. I could have been looking for rental property. I could have been trying to wholesale. I could have been trying to do something on the construction end, but I was pretty hard headed about just wanting to invest. Oh, and the other, the other big missed opportunity, frankly, was not getting my real estate license at that point in part because of how much I was buying and how much I was flipping and ultimately selling. You're saying just to save a commission? Uh, either to earn a referral or to, oh. if I was buying something, to essentially represent myself and collect the commission off yeah. what I was going to be buying anyway. So that was a missed opportunity. And then in the long term with kind of like team building and referring agents and all that, through my brother, I probably missed out on some opportunities. But there was a reason why I wanted to separate myself from that. So while I left some cash on the table, I think it's not inconceivable that had I done that, it would have distracted me from growing and developing on the investment side. So I guess I don't have too many regrets, but I do feel a lot better now that we have we have kind of multiple multiple balls in the air, so to speak. So we have we still have some flips, we have rentals, we have manage the management company, we have the construction business. I've been doing some wholesaling. So I feel like I'm a lot more diversified now. And I think I, my journey towards kind of like stabilized self-employment would have been a little bit more seamless and a little less rocky had I been more diversified from the very beginning. It's very funny that that is one of your failures because one of my failures that I wrote down is the same thing. So, uh, it's, uh, but, but from, but from a, a different angle. So, so I wrote down only doing one thing, which is a, a failure of mine in the startup world. Again, there's this mentality in, in startups. I think also I want to just extend this to the entrepreneurial world as a concept, but there's a, there's an idea that when you're doing something that your own, you know, startup, you have to devote all of your time to it and all of your life and all of your effort to it. I think you see this, this is like fetishized, right? Like to say, you look at like Elon Musk, the guy works like 120 hours a week, right? Or you look at- He works 27 other, hours a day. He works 27 hours a day. Yeah, it's Martian time. 
these people that all they do is like they live and they breathe and they eat your startup. They live and die with their startup. And when I was running my startups and even at times with real estate, I thought that that was the mentality that I had to, to be in in order to be successful. And throughout my entire life, I had been different than that. Like when I was in high school, I was in all these different clubs, all these different activities. And I was in college, the same thing. When I was in law school, the same thing. And then all of a sudden, when I, uh, when I was uh, even working, I, was, I both had a job and was running a startup on the side. That was what I did for a year, maybe similar to when you were working. But as soon as when I s- stopped my full-time you know, day job to do startups full-time, that's all I did. I didn't do anything else. I didn't work on any other ideas, any other projects. I didn't try to make money in any other way. I didn't really have any hobbies. I didn't, I didn't join any groups. I didn't just do anything. And not only was that not successful, but it made me very unhappy. And I became much happier when I was both doing my startup and kind of moonlighting on the side as a real estate investor. And now I'm much more happier because even though I would say, you know, real estate is sort of my, my primary gig, we do so many things within that space. We do, as Ryan just mentioned, construction, management, acquisitions, fundraising, you name it, like everything else. And also I have a lot going on outside of that. I'm involved in different groups. I've been doing legal work. I've been doing all sorts of stuff. So those that makes me really just happy. It's not even necessarily correlated to like the most financial success. I'm, I mean, I think it is just because I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying more what I do. But um, this idea of having to be single-minded on one task to be successful is one of my... Uh, biggest failures for sure. I think that for several years, I did nothing else but run a startup. And uh, I wish I did other things during that time to diversify. It's funny that you bring that up because even in the last week when we were talking about business idea that I had, I was kind of like, well, I don't know if it's really worth pursuing right now because we have so many other things going on. And it strikes me as the kind of idea that we would need to go all in on kind of like piggybacking off of that notion that your startup has to be your whole life. Right. Isn't that and the, yeah. I, I I guess I still do kind of believe that in a way. Maybe it doesn't have to be from the very beginning, but I think once it reaches a certain level of traction, I think it warrants the kind of love and attention that something that has a lot of time and money invested in it requires. Oh. But I, but I, but I think that, that doesn't necessarily mean that whatever it is that you're doing has to be everything that you're doing. Right. There's always room to have, to take up a hobby or to to find something else that can be an outlet for you. I think for us, even, even this podcast is that it's right. a way to take a step back. It's a way to think about things in a different way. It's a way to be a little bit more creative, a little bit more social. And I think that's healthy. Should we move on to uh, success here? I mean, actually, even though we're going back and forth, the success that I have is sort of the counter of what I just said. So, uh, as is mine. Oh, really? (laughs) Well, so my (laughs) second failure, as you may recall, was not diversifying my income streams earlier. Uh, I would say one success is more recently the, both the breadth of experience that I've attained and now the income, like the different income streams that, I and we collectively have developed. I think I was really trying to highlight the breadth of experience, but I think now that it, that has taken the form of or has been facilitated by all of these different kind of side endeavors that, we, that we've pursued over the last few years. So I was just kind of rattling off a list of like different things that I can say I quote unquote have experience in now. So I've done, now I've done, and 
this is purely to brag and for all of you to stroke my ego and tell me how great I am at age 28. You're um, so no, great, this is, just, this is awesome. <laughs> this wow. is really just I'm proud to kind of kinda highlight the fact that oh. I, I don't really consider myself an expert in any of these things, <laughs> but I think having, but I think having this like at least level of fami familiarity with all of these different things is value valuable. And when you can put multiple, I've always thought that like the, that real opportunities lie in the ability to combine kind of unique talents or unique areas of expertise that in a creative sort of way to either solve a problem or do something new. I, even for, I just, I don't want to interrupt you. Um, and but, also but go ahead and interrupt you're, me. You're, you're so great. <laughs> uh, I just want to say that, but um, just because it, it's on my, one of my favorite um, concepts that touches on that is um, by the guy that created Dilbert, uh, oh, yes. uh, Scott, Scott Adams. Adams. Yeah. And uh, he has a great quote. I always think about it, which is that, Scott Adams is not the funniest guy. There are people that are funnier than he is, and he's not the greatest artist. There are people that are much better than he is, but he's a pretty good artist and he's pretty funny. Yeah. And that in that together makes him successful at drawing, at doing comics. Right. And you could you can apply that to everybody. Right. You know, like Michael Jordan isn't the tallest basketball player. He's not the fastest basketball player. He doesn't have the highest, you know, free throw percentage or whatever, but he has, he's very good and has all these other attributes that combine create the best, right? And allegedly a debilitating gambling problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> he's hyper competitive. What can, he's what very competitive. Um, so does Charles Barkley, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Just getting back to the, the breadth of experience, I, I, I think had I, you told me three or four years ago when I was just getting started in this world that after a few years, I would have I would have done all of these things. I think I would have been both pretty surprised and relatively impressed. In that time, I've done I've done flips. I've bought rental property. I've done property management for myself, and now third party property management. I've started a construction business and run several successful construction projects, start to finish. You are a general contractor, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> According to the state of New Jersey. I've run the tax lien portfolio that I alluded to earlier. I've bought and sold commercial property. I've bought and rented out commercial property or proper, property with a commercial space, I should say. I've bought property from an estate. I've bought bank foreclosures. I've bought tax lien foreclosures or tax sale foreclosures through a city. I've done online marketing for deal sourcing through pay-per-click advertising. I've done SEO optimization for the sake of deal sourcing. I've done direct mail for deal, deal sourcing. I've started a podcast, which you may have heard of. I've built websites from scratch or through templates, but effectively built websites from scratch for real estate businesses and construction businesses. And coming soon, the new brickxbrickrealestate.com website. Wow. And You've yeah, I think that's money. all I've ever done. I've, raised, I, I've money. raised money. <laughs> um, and I guess I say that a little bit to brag and to kind of toot my own horn. But at the end of the day, I think that there's value in trying new things and my willingness to try all of these things without any prior knowledge has kind of opened up all of these doors to new opportunities, as I alluded to before with the tax lien portfolio. But the same being true with the construction business, the same thing being true with wholesaling or starting or building a website online to try to source deals. All of these things have have opened up doors. They've made me some amount of money. They've certainly taken some time and they've had plenty of roadblocks. But 
at the end of all of it, I think I've been far more better off having, having challenged myself with all of these new endeavors than I would be had I just started flipping property and continued flipping property for five years with no new, no new plan in sight. First of all, it's a very impressive. I mean, I know you're joking, but it is very impressive. And, uh, it's, it's funny because, um, I actually, one of my number two thing that I was going to talk about is, is super similar, although from a little bit of a different angle, the way that I was conceiving of it is, um, sort of like hustling, right? Like hustling on the side, uh, or, or just, just hustling in general. And for, for me, that has led to almost everything that I do. I would say that, you know, I started out doing, when I started doing tech startups, that was like a side thing for fun almost, and just kind of see where it went. And it turned into something I did full time. For a while, real estate was the same way. It was just like hustling, just seeing like, oh, I wonder if we can buy property. Management, the same thing. Doing construction, the same thing. Legal stuff, the same thing. Um, this YouTube thing that uh, my wife and I have is the same thing. And Shout out, Shannon. Um, shout out to Shannon. Yeah, she called me before this and said she really had a best shout out, even though I don't think she's listened to any episode, let's just be honest. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, so buried in this episode is that. But um, I think something I have written down is... Um, just showing up is really important. Just trying to do something is really important. There's so many things that I've done in my life where I have done... I The only reason why I did them and that I'm successful at them at all is because I literally showed up. I mean, I you know, one thing that uh, I do, which I guess is in some context is impressive, is that I'm the, the vice president of the Yale Club of Central New Jersey. And I literally got that job because I showed up. I didn't do anything. I just was there. You know, I just like attended several meetings. And then because I was there now, they're like, well, you should be in charge. I mean, you're always here, right? I mean, truly, right? I like I there there are so many things like that, like where I was just happened to be in the room because I was like, I guess I'll be there. I just showed up to a thing. Or I just thought, you know, I guess I could I could try to do this one thing. I could try to manage some property. I could try to do some legal work. I could try to make a YouTube channel, make a podcast, uh, start a business with a friend, you know, that has led to like everything, you know, in, in a way that say going to school to learn about something and being super, super purposeful about it has been important. But without that other component of like hustling is, is the way that I think about it. I just wouldn't have, I, I would not be anywhere near where I am right now. One counterpoint to, I think both of our last strengths or last, uh, the last success for each of us is that I think that this has kind of come at the expense of going deeper into certain areas of expertise. So I think we talked about this yesterday, actually. But had we spent the last year strictly flipping and focused on nothing else but being the absolute best flippers of real estate that we possibly could be, we could probably build out a pretty good business doing just that. And maybe that is the right path for some people, but I think both of us get excited about the idea of doing different things and trying new things. And it's just not really in our DNA to want to only do one thing. So I think that there, there have been some downsides to to our kind of try all of these, try this little like sample platter of everything approach. But you know, at the end of the day, you've got to do what's right for you and what makes the most sense for you. So in our case, maybe, maybe that's what it is. Should we move on to our, our last failure here? Yeah. So The last failure that I have is actually one of the things that I think we've both kind of alluded to as both a success and failure. But my third failure is the construction business itself. I think there's a lot of different ways. There are a lot of different ways to approach that. 
and both to classify it as a success or a failure. But I think that the way that I, the reason why I consider it to be a failure is that it's been an example of us trying to do too much. And it's an example of us trying to do something that one, we are probably not uniquely well-suited to do. And two, it's something that takes up a lot of time and comes at the expense of being able to do things that we are much better suited to do. So we've discussed this in the past and I don't want to go too deep into it, but I think to an extent, the last year, year and a half of running the construction business has hindered our ability to, for example, go deeper on the acquisition side of things and really focusing on deal sourcing, which I think is a much higher value task for the two of us. And I think it's a task that we are both much better suited to be focusing on right. than something like running a construction business, which frankly, before a few years ago, neither of us had much experience in nor much of an inclination to want to pursue. Uh, and we just kind of did it because it was something that we wanted to try. So there are any number of details, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I think that's, that's my point number three. I think that's a great point. I strongly agree. I think for me, what really rings true is that it's, you know, we have unique, we speaking for ourselves, but obviously everybody has unique skills and talents and abilities and finding ways to leverage that is probably the highest use of those abilities and therefore your time. So doing something where you could do it, but perhaps your abilities and talent and time are best used somewhere else is I think a sign of maturity as a, as a human and as an entrepreneur for, for sure. Whereas we were just talking about hustling and trying to try everything. It also takes maturity to say, Hey, here's something not for me. I think that's also there's a, there's an element of timing to that. So I think there's there's a time and a place to be trying a lot of different things, but there's also a time and a place to say, hey, I've done this. This isn't for me. It's time to move on. So you're saying the Shakira song, Try Everything, which of course was featured in Zootopia, <laughs> is a worthwhile anthem, but uh, only for for a sort of uh, entry-level type things. Correct. It's a great song. Uh, I woke up uh, with that song in my head this morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little insight into my life. Um, uh, <laughs> moving on, what is your failure number three, Mr. Erica? Uh, it is a little bit different. It's, uh, I have it phrased as not asking for what I want. And um, this is like a bigger topic that I think is true in a lot of different um, things, but it's something that I've been uncovering recently in strange contexts, I suppose. But what I mean for that is, you know, I, I, a lot of moments in my entrepreneurial journey and my real estate journey have been bouncing many different components. So there'll be, you know, my desires, the desires of maybe my wife, the desires of my friends, the desires of people around me involved with me. And I oftentimes haven't prioritized my own desires and I've, I haven't really asked for what I really want to get. Less so now because I've cognizant of that and more so in the past. So I might, you know, languish in, you know, when, when I was working in my startups, I really wanted to get things out of my co-founders. But I, for whatever reason, whether it be social timidity or lack of confidence, I never really asked for that. Or, you know, if I wanted to raise money, I never really straightforward asked for the amount of money that I wanted to raise. Or, you know, even in a, in a micro level, like if I want something from someone that I'm working with or from a subcontractor or anything like that, 
it, I'm sometimes hesitant to say, hey, here's what I'm looking for. Here's what I want because I'll feel awkward or I'll feel uncomfortable yeah, or whatever. And that has definitely caused me both to be unhappy at times when I didn't have to be and also just to cause me to not be as successful as I think I could have been because I didn't, you know, no one can read my mind and no one is going to just, you know, do me a favor and say, here's what I think you're looking for. I have to tell people, this is what I expect. This is what I want. And here's what I want to achieve out of it. And being a lot more purposeful in that way, even if it's uncomfortable or awkward or I don't like it, is uh, it's hard for me. I think it's hard for everybody, but it's certainly difficult for me. And it's, uh, uh, it's very important though. It's certainly important when you're working for yourself. If you're, if you're an employee, you're sort of given, someone else tells you what they want, right? And then you deliver it. When you're working for yourself, you need to tell yourself and people around you what you desire and, and make that happen. I, I see it all the time. I mean, I was literally talking to somebody last night, um, a friend of mine about, um, called me and said that uh, he had a problem with uh, some college counselor that he had paid for and said that, uh, he'd been kind of like ripped off a bunch of money. And I said, uh, well, okay. Or he was asking my legal advice, like what legal remedies does he have? And I said, well, did you ask for money back? And he said, oh no, like, do you think I should do that? I was like, yeah. At, like, is that what you want? Yeah, ask for it. They could say no, and then you could pursue some legal options. But if you haven't asked for it, they're not going to volunteer it, right? I mean, we saw that even you alluded to this, uh, this deal that uh, we lost money on. You know, we had to, at various times, ask for what we wanted, right? I mean, we had to ask for, for a big amount of money from somebody who had really screwed up this deal. And I think um, it wasn't super fun to ask for that, but we got it. And, uh, you know, we, it was good that we asked for it, you know? <laughs> so I think uh, my, my main takeaway is, one of my big failures is not asking for what I want. And I'm trying to work on that. I'm on to my last success, which ironically is going to also piggyback off some of the last point that you just discussed. At a high level, I consider my third success to be perhaps the biggest, which is the fact that I'm 28 years old. And for the past three and a half years, I've been successfully self-employed as a full-time real estate investor. I think there are any number of ways to kind of quantify that success, the number of deals that I've done, the number of rental properties that I have or manage, the number of Airbnbs, the number of flips, the number of construction projects, whatever measure you want to take on it. You can say that it's either a success or a failure. You could say that it's impressive or it's not as impressive as it looks. But I think the fact of the matter is that I've been able to do this. I think most people consider it impressive. I think you'd be a little insane to say not impressive, but sure. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that. Proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what I wanted to, or what I want to focus on more is that during that time, I've, I don't think I've truly embodied what I originally intended when I went out on my own, which was that I wanted to kind of design the life that I wanted to live and to use my business and my investing as a vehicle to achieve that. So I've been frankly not good at taking time off or planning and taking the vacations that I would have wanted to take. I haven't been good at limiting my working hours to my working hours. Uh, I often find myself thinking about things that are related to work, essentially from the point when I wake up in the morning to the point when I go to sleep at night. And while I try to disconnect, it's kind of hard to to turn off some of those notifications or to 
to get those thoughts and lingering concerns out of my head. During the day, I sometimes find it hard to to find balance between the things that I'm worrying about that are work-related while also being appreciative of the fact that I'm spending the day essentially as I command myself to spend my day. And I think that that's, you know, it's both a blessing and a curse. The fact that I'm always thinking about things means that there's probably a greater likelihood that certain things will get done. But at the same time, it's just not a good way to live to constantly be concerned about things. And, you know, I've got, I'm essentially living the dream that I had four years ago when I was working full time. But in the moment, I don't always appreciate it. And then the last point is just to focus on doing the types of projects that I'm more passionate about as opposed to the types of projects that maybe I think I should be doing. So it's, it's again, piggybacking off what, what John said earlier. I think this was his first point, which was to emulate, emulate those that you think are successful. I think sometimes I do deals that I think a real estate investor should do, but maybe for the wrong reasons. And I think what's important is to find the intersection of where your passions lie and what makes sense from a from an objective kind of investment thesis standpoint. My last success for this uh, purpose is um, a little bit related to that and, and kind of related to what we were saying before about uh, doing different things and what I was saying about hustling, which is um, that nothing is below me, like swallowing my pride. And that mentality has been a... First of all, I, I think that that's just just an, a, a nice human mentality because just because of who you are or uh, you know your upbringing or your the the wealth of your family or where you went to college or whatever doesn't make you better than anybody else. For me, that translates into that any task that I've had to come up with or or confront in my professional journey, I've never I've never for a second thought, oh, this is this is so below me, right? Like, like I, I certainly have thought this is not a good use of my time, but I've, I've almost never confronted a task and said like, I can't believe that I'm doing this. Like, like someone with my, you know, three Ivy league degrees, yeah, my, legal uh, background, right. My startup experience, my educational, shall we say attainment can't be doing this. And I think being willing to get your hands dirty and just like do whatever has been a key concept for me in just like getting stuff done. One way that I think of of running your own business as being is that the buck always stops with you. Like if if you can have the greatest systems in place and you can have staff and contractors and other people that are supposed to handle stuff, but if at the end of the day something doesn't get done for whatever reason, you need to make sure that it's done. And if that in an absolute worst case scenario means that you have to do it, then you have to do it because it just has to get done. And that having that mentality, I think we even in a previous episode, we talked about how having too much of that mentality can be bad. And I'm certainly uh, very guilty of that. But having that mentality in a general sense of just saying, I need to do whatever it takes to get it done. And nothing is sort of below my level of pride, whether it's, you know, literally uh, shoveling stuff into a garbage can, which I've done, piling my car full of uh, rotten trash to drive it somewhere, which I've done. Or mulch. Or or more mulch or uh, shoveling concrete. These pants that I'm wearing are my concrete pants now. (laughs) I just realized that. All sorts of stuff I have done 
And I've been happy to do it because I felt as though I had to get it done. But if I had thought in my mind that people that go to law school aren't supposed to do that, then I wouldn't have done it and I wouldn't have been successful. All kidding aside, I can attest to this firsthand because I see this truly day in and day out. I would say for somebody with your level of knowledge, your level of academic experience, your professional experience, you truly have no capacity to say, I will not do this because this is beneath me and arguably to a fault maybe because it takes up a lot of your your time. (laughs) But uh, I I do think there's something to be said for the character of like the character trait of acknowledging that nothing is beneath you. Well, this is a great episode. I think that this is also kind of illustrative of life as an entrepreneur. We highlighted both successes and we highlighted failures. And along your entrepreneurial journey, you will certainly experience both. And I think it's important not to dwell on the failures too long, but to acknowledge them, learn from them, and ideally not repeat the same ones more time, uh, more than once. Uh, And then to celebrate the successes, but not to not to blow yourself so full of hot air that you think that you'll never, that you can do no wrong and that you won't, you won't lose money on the next deal or you won't, you're not immune to, to failures. You're not immune to obstacles. Yep. I think it's something we don't do enough is uh, celebrate our successes. And sometimes when you get sucked up into the entrepreneurial world, you don't realize how successful you become. I mean, really listening to you describe all the things that you've done, I think it's really important to take a, sometimes take a step back and say, wow, I've really done a lot. You know, I've really am a comp, you know, I've accomplished be, important things. So that'll be your homework for the weekend. <laughs> Deliver a list to me on Monday of oh, everything boy. you've accomplished in the last wow. few years. Like I've, I've probably tied my shoe like thousands, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of times. I won't hold you to it. To like a two-year-old, that's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode. And thank you guys for listening. We'll be back, uh, I guess, next week. We'll do another one. So talk thank to you guys you very soon. Much. Don't forget to visit us at BrickXBrickRealEstate.com for free content to help you along your real estate journey and to follow along on our projects. Subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app and engage with us online via Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and BrickXBrickRealEstate.com. See you next time on the Brick by Brick Podcast.